Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two under two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. Thank you so much to Steadily Insurance for sponsoring this week's episode. There are a lot of things that keep us up at night as hosts. Those late night questions from your guests, scrolling Zillow for the next perfect investment, scouring Pinterest for design inspo. What shouldn't keep you up at night is worrying about what would happen to your hosting business if a fire, flood, or storm damaged your property, damages or theft occurred, or if a guest got injured and filed a lawsuit against you. That's where Steadily Insurance comes in. Steadily provides comprehensive landlord insurance to hosts doing short-term rental, mid-term, or even long-term rentals. So no matter how your business model might change, you are still covered. We all know that the coverage provided by the booking platforms we use isn't always the most reliable. So put your business in the hands of Steadily, who will have your back when you need it most. Click on the link in the show notes to request a free quote or head to hostwithnatalie.steadilypartner.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer, and today I am delighted to have the Real Estate Robinsons, Tony and Sarah Robinson. It's about time. I've wanted you two on forever. You guys are such a power couple. So welcome to the show, and for the few people in my audience who don't know who you are, can you please introduce yourselves? Yes. Hi, <laughs> Hi. We are so excited to be on your show. Thanks for finally inviting us, Bia. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, we are the Real Estate Robinsons. My name is Sarah. Um, This is my husband, Tony. Um, We, um, what's our story? Yeah, (laughs) girl. We have been dating since we were 16. We started investing in short-term rentals back in 2020. Um, But before that, Tony started investing himself, um, in 2019 and long-term rentals. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, we're at like almost 30 properties right now, spread across a few different markets. Um, all of our properties are owned, so we don't have any co-hosting or arbitrage yet, though we are yes. onboarding our very first property management client. Like hopefully they'll... So we need to take your tips. Yeah. 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 Coming here shortly. So yeah. we're looking to build out that part of our business. But um, we have our, our YouTube channel, The Real Estate Robinsons, where we talk about investing in short-term rentals. I'm the co-host of The Real Estate Rookie Podcast with Bigger Pockets, which is like a top... 30 business podcasts on most charts. So um, we spend a lot of time educating people and kind of talking about our journey. So excited to bring that story here. Amazing. And I just love that you guys do it as husband and wife. I am trying so hard to get my husband to quit his teaching job and come on board, but he's like so (laughs) secure with his little W-2. And I'm like, if you just saw the vision, okay, things are way better over here. That's okay. I feel like people (laughs) always say that. I was the husband in, in this scenario. And I think if your spouse, if, those of you guys that are listening, if you have a partner in your life that you want to get into real estate and you just they haven't hopped on the train, that's okay. Don't mm-hmm. force them. If that's not their their tea, if that's not their interest, if they really are aligned with what they're already doing in life, let them be. As long as they're giving you that support, then yeah. 
that's totally fine. And we always say like, there's kind of like three levels to the whole spouse piece, right? Like level one is your spouse's actively working against you like becoming a real estate investor right where they're not supportive they're saying like hey like, i don't want, want you to, to do, do this um and they're they're literally acting as an obstacle to you moving forward that's probably the hardest position to be in then the the second level is kind of where you're at where your spouse is supportive but not involved right that's where but, i was at in 2018 where, with the long-term rental stuff and i'd say that's where the majority of people are yeah. and then level three where sarah and i are is okay we're doing this together right and um i i do think that a lot of people get stuck at that level two and they have aspirations to get to level three but to sarah's point like i think the only way you can get to that third level is if there's a part of the business that your spouse can identify with to say, hey, this is what I'm uniquely skilled at, or mm-hmm. here's what I can uniquely bring in terms of value to this business partnership and something that I would enjoy doing. Okay. And I think that that's how we got Sarah to that third level was because she found a part of our business that she not only was good at, but also enjoyed doing. Like I saw myself saying like, oh my God, I can see myself actually providing value Before, I was like, I have no idea what he's doing. This is so confusing. But once he shifted to short-term rentals, I was like, I know Airbnbs. I would love to design and set one up and provide a great customer experience. And that was that transition piece for us. Mm -hmm. But just to piggyback off of that, another way, Natalie, if you want to try this with your spouse, um, something that really motivated me to get on the real estate bandwagon was attending in-person events Mm -hmm. and connecting with other in like real life people that looked like us, talked like us, like didn't come from a ton of money. And it was just so um, relatable to me. I was like, holy shit, we can, we can do this. I could do this too. You know, I don't have yeah. to be a number crunching wizard like Tony is like, I can figure this out. So yeah, for yeah. those of you guys listening, if you're looking to get your spouse on board, we just dropped a bunch of nuggets for yeah. you guys. And I guess just like one last thing to add before we get this topic, and this doesn't apply to you, Natalie, because you're already crushing it, but I think a lot of people who are just getting started or have, or have aspirations to start investing in real estate, they get frustrated because their spouse isn't like, yeah, do this, do this, do this. But really, it, it comes down to the level of trust and belief between the the two spouses, right? Mm -hmm. If you are someone who has a chronic history of, you know, half-assing everything in your life or starting but not finishing anything, then your spouse has a legitimate reason to not be super supportive of you saying, hey, I want to take our life savings and dump it into this real estate investing thing that I know nothing about. So I think it starts with making sure you have a good foundation of trust. And the way you build that trust is by showing your spouse how serious you are. So to Sarah's point, that's, you know, consuming a bunch of content like this, the the podcast, um, YouTube, reading books, going to conferences. And if your spouse can see that you're actually serious about this thing, that's how you start to build that trust to give them to get you that support that you're looking for. I think that is, that was so good. We weren't even going to talk about that, but I'm actually so glad we just did. Um, So basically, so Tony, you were already doing the long-term rental and Sarah, you didn't come on until you saw the STR piece. And I think that's cool how you guys are combining strategies. I think a lot of like my listeners are here for short-term rentals and there's so many other things you can do. Um, Actually going off of what you just said, my big goal right now to get my husband more involved is he's a teacher and so he has summers off and I'm like next summer, Let's make it a goal to close on a property right before and do a flip over three months. You'll be off. We can flip it together and then sell it right before summer, um, right before summer ends. And so I definitely think what you're saying, like you have to find, give them their piece of value that they can bring to the table. He just, 
I feel like I've got the short-term rental so mastered he doesn't see himself fitting anywhere there. But I'm like, maybe yeah. a flip would be interesting to you and you can be a general contractor and project manager on that. So yeah, that's really valuable. Um, mm-hmm. Really good advice that you can switch up your strategy. And yeah. speaking of events and proving that you are really in this and that you want to network do you guys want to promote your event which is in just a couple weeks um i'm so excited i thank you guys for asking me to speak there i'm going to be talking about co-hosting i cannot wait but can you promote that really quickly i know so many people are going to be dying to go Yes, so we are so excited and honored to have you speak at our STR Summit happening in Orlando on January 20th through the 22nd. That's Friday through Sunday. Mm-hmm. So this is our second um, large in-person conference. Uh, the last one we did was in September in Newport Beach, and it was just such an insane experience for ourselves, for our attendees, for our speakers. There was just um, this electrifying energy in the room for two and a half days of like-minded people that are either already doing STRs or wanting to get STR, get into STRs. And there is nothing that compares to being in a room full of people doing and talking about what you are striving to do. Mm-hmm. So if you, again, I was in that place. I had no interest in real estate. I was very intimidated. I felt like the stupidest person in the room. And it wasn't until I personally started going to in-person events. And I started to build this community and relationship with other investors and friends. These people end up becoming friends of yours. And um, yeah, there's just something super electrifying about um, attending in-person events. So if you guys are interested in um, becoming a short-term rental host, operator, co-host, we would love to have you guys join us at the STR Summit again in Orlando, uh, the 23rd, the 22nd. yeah, head over to strsummit.com and you guys can pick up your tickets there. And actually, if you use the code Natalie, you guys get 10% off. Yeah. There you go. I will link that in the show notes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I think that's great. Um, actually, and I may have told you this, Sarah, already, but at your last event, the September one, um, I ended up meeting this like cool group of other women that were local to Orange County where I am. And now we yeah. do Taco Tuesday every single month. And that's I like my that. little STR girl gang. And so that is um, like... So freaking cool. Such and a cool story. And we've heard so many so stories many like that, that. That lead, hey, I made this connection. Like some of our students are doing deals to get like it's been great yeah. to see the, oh. the connections that happen at events like that. You guys are like proud parents of all these little <laughs> actually that makes me emotional. I feel like maybe this is something your husband will really resonate with is if he's a teacher and likes to teach people and give, you know, value to other people. Like for me, our journey in all of this, that has been the most rewarding for me. It hasn't been the actual deals and cash flow we're generating. It is the fact that us sharing our journey on YouTube and on stage and on Instagram is providing this community for people and inspiration and guidance. And that just is like, if I died today, I would be very happy because that, like you said, I just feel like so proud that we are spreading um, our, our knowledge and our mistakes and everything and helping other people. So yeah, that's been really cool. Sarah, you're such a good salesperson because you're not even selling. You just like <laughs> speak from the heart so much. It gives me chills. Um, <laughs> okay, so here's what I want to really talk to you guys about today. Um, and of course, I'll link the summit in the show notes and everything. But Tony, I really wanted to have you on to talk about deal analysis. A few weeks ago, I posted on Instagram um, asking people which deal analysis calculators they're using to run deals. Um, I was using one that I wasn't thrilled with. And 
I swear nine out of 10 people said, do you know the real estate Robinsons? You should download theirs. <laughs> and I went and downloaded it and I love it. I feel like you give sure. just enough, um, you know, factors to consider to where it's not overwhelming, um, but you still go deeper than just average nightly rate occupancy and and the purchase price. So I think that you guys are the expert on this. Do you want to kind of talk about your process? And I will also link how to sign up for that free calculator and direct people there because it's it's awesome and been so helpful so far. Yeah, I, I appreciate that shout out, Natalie. Um, but first, I have to give a shout out because that calculator actually is an adaptation of one of my friends. His name is Alex Savio. Alex! Um, and Alex initially made that calculator and I took it and made some changes. So got to give a shout out to Alex. Um, and before you even talk, full disclosure, I know zero about deal analysis. I do no number crunching or <laughs> anything. That is totally what this guy does. I trust you, baby. You can yeah. do all of that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, that's, the, that's the calculator piece. If you guys want to download it, you can go to the realestaterobinsons.com for slash calculator it's totally free we've had like tens and thousands of people download that calculator at this point it's been pretty crazy um but to to answer your question right so like when we're when we're looking at a property what are the factors that we're looking at from an analysis standpoint i I think the first thing i'll say natalie is that everyone kind of wants a silver bullet to say hey what is the magical cash on cash return that i should be looking for when buying a property and my answer is always the biggest cop-out of it depends because every investor has a different set of criteria that they're using to evaluate deals. Some people are evaluating deals. And I kind of, I know, I know a guy who's, you know, super high net worth, makes a ton of money, and he just wants to buy short-term rentals for the tax benefits. He just needs to offset, you know, he needs to do uh, cost segregation and offset his, his active income from his other businesses. So he's not even really concerned about the cash on cash return. Mm. I know other people that say, hey, I just want to kind of break even. So I have a property that is in a city that I love to visit and it, and it kind of pays for itself. And then there are people like me and Sarah who say, hey, we are doing this as a business. We want to build a large portfolio. We want to maximize our cash on cash return. So everyone kind of has a different criteria. So that's that's my first thing that I want to point out now, because I, I think some people get super caught up on what is that number? Do you I don't, do you do you hear that from your audience as well? Like they just want like, oh, all the time. It's crazy because I'm I'm with you guys. Like for me, I want to see the most profits. And when I started doing like consultations and stuff with people, I would be so shocked to hear them. Like certain times I'd suggest something and they're like, well, I don't really, I don't know if I want to book that many more days a month. Like I might want to go there then. And I was like, wow, this is like (laughs) a whole other world of people booking it for different reasons, but you're spot on. You have to figure out what your goals are first to make these calculators and this deal analysis make any sense for you at all. Yeah. So the, the things that we actually look at when we're analyzing a deal, um, it's income and expenses, obviously, but the expenses are pretty straightforward, right? That's like your your utilities, your insurance costs, um, like property taxes, all those things are your, your mortgage costs. Like those are things that are relatively straightforward to kind of ballpark. The thing that makes short-term rentals more complicated is the, the income projections. So when you're buying a long-term rental, you know pretty much exactly what your income is going to be because your tenant signs a lease, a sign a lease for 12, 18, sometimes even longer than that in terms of months. And every month on the first of the month, you're going to get a predetermined amount paid from that tenant to your account. With short-term rentals, it's totally different because your income is based on a mix of your average daily rate and your occupancy on that on that unit. Your average daily rate is a number. When we analyze a deal, we look at it average across an entire year. So if you look at all of a booking, all of the potential bookings a property might get from January 1st to December 31st in a calendar year, there is some average number that people are paying to stay at your property. Some months are going to be super high. Like for example, in Joshua Tree, we're, we're 
slowly creeping into the peak season, which is spring. Um, and, you know, our rates on some of our tiny homes can be four or $500 a night for a studio. Um, that same property during the, the slow season in the summer might rent for $76 a night. So it's a massive swing between your, your peak season and your slow season. So you always want to make sure that you get an average across the entire year. Because if I analyze a property based on one month or one season, I'm either going to grossly underestimate or overestimate what that property is going to do. So we always look at an, an average across the entire year. Once you have your average daily rate, the next thing you want to look at is your occupancy. Can I interrupt Most, really quick? Yeah, I'm so please. sorry, but where are you? Wh- where do you search? What are the tools that you're using to go figure out what the average daily rate would be? Yeah, that's a great question. So there, there are different ways to do it, right? If you want to do it the, the free way, um, you just need Airbnb or Verbo. You go into those platforms, you search for properties that are in the city that you're you're looking to purchase in, uh, look for properties that are similar to the ones you're looking to buy, and just open up their calendar and look at what their listed rates are over the next, you know, however far out you, you want to go. Um, I usually like to go at least like 30, 60, 90 days out. That way you get, you know, kind of different um, flavors of, of the month and you can kind of hit different seasons. Um, that data though is not always perfect because that is forward looking data. That is what those hosts are hoping to get for that property on that given night. Chances are what that property actually ends up booking for on that given day will be different than what the price is that you see. So that's the the downside. So you probably want to add a little bit of a buffer. So if you look at a property and say that the average daily rate is a hundred bucks for that time frame that you look at, maybe discount that to like 75 per, or, or, you know, $65 just to offset some of that, that sure. fuzziness there. The other thing if, tricky is you'll only see dates that are still available, right? Exactly. The ones that are blocked, you actually don't know what they booked for. You don't for. even know what they paid for, right? Um, so that that's one way if it's totally free that you want to go. Um, if you want to pay for a tool, there are tons of tools out there that, that, that you can use. Um, AirDNA is a big one. We typically use Price Labs in our business. Um, and Price Labs is great because in addition to getting the forward-looking data, you also get historical data. I think Price Labs goes back like 18 months. Um, so, you know, you can see all of 2022 and a little bit of 2021. And that data is probably better than the forward-looking data because that's what people actually paid and what they actually booked for. And right we actually... Now- um, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but do you no, like, please. how do you kind of view, because I know a lot of people say like 2021 was like their best year ever. So if you are looking 18 months back right now, you're getting the last six months of that really, really mm-hmm. profitable year. And then things yeah. dipped last year. So when you are looking back historically, what, like, where do you, you know, how do you take it with a grain a grain of salt, knowing that demand has kind of changed? Yeah, I, I probably wouldn't use 2021 data okay. um, in any of my analysis moving forward because that was such a banner year for short-term mental performance, right? Okay. And that was that was like such a weird time where there was so much pent-up demand and like you could throw anything on Airbnb in 2021 and probably make a ton of money. I think 2022 was probably a more kind of normalized year. Okay. So if you are analyzing, I'm, I'm probably looking at that 2022 data. Okay. Um, but those platforms, those sites like Verba, I'm sorry, like AirDNA and Price Labs, they, it's so crazy. Like I, we actually interviewed the guy who's the VP of data and analytics for AirDNA on our podcast not too long ago. And he said that they have like millions and millions of listings that they're tracking on a daily basis to see crazy. what is their listed rates. Are they getting booked? Are they not? So there's like tons of data points coming in. So their, their data is pretty pretty reliable. It's never going to be perfect, um, but it is pretty reliable. So I do like to use those to actually go and get my data when I'm analyzing these deals. Okay, awesome. Um, All right, let's pick back up on then you were going into talking about occupancy. Yeah, so occupancy is the same thing, right? Like almost no property is going to be fully booked for an entire year. 
Um, you're going to have some nights that don't book and every market is going to be different. Like some markets on an, on an annual basis might be at 50% occupancy because they su shut down for six months. Um, others might be at 75% occupancy or 60%. So you always want to use some number that's less than 100. Um, now for us, actually, our, our tiny homes in Joshua Tree, they typically run north of 90% occupancy. Awesome. Um, but even when we analyze those deals, we still analyze it like 75 to 80% to keep that buffer. But the way you get that data is the same way you get your pricing data, which is going to sites like AirDNA or Price Labs, and they have both forward-looking projections and you know historical like actual data for occupancy as well. Okay. And typically, I just try and find again an average across the entire year, and that's what I plug into the calculator. Okay. All right. So you've got your average daily rate, you've got your occupancy, multiply that out, and then how do you know? Still, you got to factor in your purchase price and those utilities, yeah. cleaning fees. So how do we like nuts and bolts know if it's a good deal? That's a, yeah. So you, I'm glad you mentioned cleaning fees because I think that's something that a lot of people forget to include. Um, things are kind of changing now and, and we're experimenting with this in our portfolio as well. But historically, most hosts charge their guests a cleaning fee and that cleaning fee gets paid by the guests and then is included in your deposit as the host. And you have to turn around and pay your cleaners out of that deposit. Um, we typically charge a slight premium on our cleaning fee. So if we pay our cleaners 100 bucks, we might charge the guests 110, 125, something like that. Um, so we do include that spread of $25 as part of our income because if like our tiny homes turn about 15 times on average per month, 12 to 15 times per month. So 12 to 15 times at $25 a pop, like that's a few hundred extra dollars every single month that we're generating just in cleaning fees. So it is important to include your cleaning fee income when you're analyzing a deal because it can actually elevate your, your returns. Um, so essentially you take your, your average daily rate, uh, you take your occupancy, multiply those two numbers together, that gives you your total baseline income, then you add in your cleaning fee income, that gives you the total income for that property across an entire year. Um, once you do that, you take out all of your expenses, so your mortgage, principal interest, taxes, insurance, utilities, repairs and maintenance, CapEx, all that stuff, yep. and there's some number that's left over that's your, that's your profit. Say it's, I don't know, $30,000 is your profit at the end of the year. The last step to do to say, is this a good deal, is you compare that $30,000 to the amount of money that you put in to purchase that deal. So that's your down payment, your closing costs any rehab that you had to spend, any startup costs like new furniture, et cetera, you add all those numbers up and then you compare it. So say you profited $30,000, but you had to spend $200,000 to buy that property. Maybe that's not a great deal. Say you profited $30,000, but you put in $60,000 to buy that property. That's a 50% cash on cash return. So you always want to compare what did I have to spend to acquire and set up this property and what are my projected profits? And that's how you get your cash on cash return. Okay. Is there a cash on cash? I know you started this by saying that it does depend right on your goals, but what's the cash on cash return number you guys are shooting for? Yeah, we typically don't want to touch a deal if it's anything less than 30%. Like that's our, that's usually our baseline. Okay. Um, a lot of our deals do better than that. I'd say the majority uh, do, but typically we, we won't even look at a deal if it's less than 30%. And are you, could you tell us a bit about your portfolio? Are you doing mostly tiny homes or like big luxury homes? Um, are you noticing a difference in the cash on cash return depending on the size of the property or the type of property? Yeah, it's that's that's a great question. Like, so our tiny homes actually give us the best cash on cash return. And it's it's because the price points are so much lower because sure. they're you know they're 300, 400 square feet. Um, from a revenue perspective, our bigger properties do better, right? Like our five bedroom cabin, you know, did I don't know, we probably did like one hundred and thirty thousand dollars last year or something like that. Um, so the cash on cash return is a little bit lower, but the gross revenues are better. But 
right now we have how many tiny homes do we have? I can't even tell you. I have yeah, to look at how I, I wouldn't um, even know either. I think we have like twelve. Uh, maybe I feel like more even. Yeah, like fifteen, and then <laughs> another fifteen in uh, like, like regular, regular size homes. homes. Yeah. yeah, it's probably like down the middle. Like half yeah. of them are like the tiny homes. The rest are traditional cabins or single family houses. Yeah, so, I prefer the tiny homes. Uh, they're just so much easier to yeah. manage. I feel like because they're tinier, less yeah. issues and stuff. So. I I agree. I'm a big fan of the, like, I think less is more on Airbnb. Um, Same thing. My properties that I manage are all smaller as well. They're tiny condos in Big Bear, 830 square feet. Um, And they just, the returns, like you said, are so crazy. Um, We'll do the same in revenue as someone I know who spent four times as much on a property in Big Bear, you know, and they, they look at it and they're like, Oh, I'm so happy I made this much. I'm like, Ooh, but (laughs) who's going to tell you you spent four times more than I did, you know? Um, And I think a lot of that goes into the traveler profile of that market. And I think that's what we're starting to see in Joshua Tree is that like in the Smoky Mountains, the big cabins tend to outperform the smaller cabins. And I think because the, the traveler demographic or the traveler profile of that city is bigger groups, right? So you get people who are coming, you know... Like whole squad. Yeah, it's the grandparents, the parents, the kids, the cousins, and, like, you know, people pull up... family vacation. A whole caravan, right? And in Joshua Tree, there is no family vacations. It's couples, it's solo trips, um, you know, like small friend getaways. So our our smaller properties perform better because no no couple is going to book three... Bedroom, you know? Yeah. 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 So <laughs> but we are experimenting, like, I think about Oleander. Like, we have a property that's a three-bedroom, two-bath, and we took it live over the summer. That listing got off to a really rough start. Yeah. But we recently made some additions to where we added, like, a full-blown like super cool themed game room. Yeah. Uh, we added like some more family type amenities, like a pack and play. I think we even had like a little baby shower thing. Yeah. Um, just a bunch of stuff to like cater to the family. This is and in Joshua Tree. Was- that's in yeah. Joshua okay. which typically isn't the case out there. And that listing has actually turned around tremendously. Like, like tremendously. immediately, once we added those amenities that we've been like avoiding adding at all of our other properties, because our our um, demographic that we've built out was, uh, you know, couples, single people traveling to do remote work and stuff. And then once we added all of these family baby toddler amenities, we saw this like, spike and we're like holy cow maybe we've been missing something this whole time that's fascinating so i would like to know so you started in joshua tree with the tiny homes and then since you've expanded into mountain destinations with the bigger homes so what was kind of the thought process there were you thinking because i know we just touched on the smaller homes give you the better cash on cash return but the bigger ones are actually more revenue so at what point did you feel like we've outgrown managing this many and we maybe want to go for like more bang for the buck with bigger properties so we actually started the other way around. Our very oh, first really? purchase okay. was a five-bedroom cabin in wow. Tennessee. Um, okay. And we bought that one first, and that one just took off and did phenomenally well. And that's when Tennessee was starting to heat up, so it was difficult to find new deals. So we said, okay, what what do we love about Tennessee? And it was, okay, there's a national park. So we said, what other national parks can we invest in here? And we're in Southern California. Joshua Tree was like 90 minutes away. Let's go check out Joshua Tree. So we actually bought the bigger property first. No way. And then the opportunities we found in Joshua Tree would just happen to be smaller. Okay. I feel like usually hosts start smaller just because that's what they can afford when they're starting right. out. So that's interesting. So from then you kind of pivoted into the tiny home model and then you've since, are you still picking up tiny homes? Or I guess I'd like to know, what's your approach right now? How are you running deals? Um, do you feel tapped out in a certain market? Are you 
focused on one market or are you always just running deals and anytime there's a good one, you'll just go for it? Yeah, I think we we are kind of feeling a little bit of fatigue in Joshua Tree. Like we talked about this, like it's, I think right now Joshua Tree is like 70% of our portfolio. And I think just having such a high concentration in one market is starting to make us nervous. A thousand percent. I've been like itching for us to, you know, pack up and like shift markets for the last like six months, maybe, you know. So it is a big goal of ours to to start establishing ourselves in other markets. So we have some stuff in Missouri that we're working on. Um, we just had our acquisitions call this morning. There's other markets we're looking at on the East Coast. So it's just a little challenging, though, Natalie, because we've set up such an insane like infrastructure in Joshua Tree. Yeah, we started flipping out there now. Um, we have like a whole crew of like general contractors, handymen that are Cleaners. doing multiple projects. We started a cleaning company. Like the, what we built out in Joshua Tree is just so tremendous that is just kind of now we know we have to like start from ground zero in a different market so i think we're like dragging our feet to make that transition but we know that we want to and need to you are speaking my language 100 my listeners know um you're doing better than me with 70 percent of your portfolio in one market i am 100 in big bear and it's Mm -hmm. scaring me so much we had a huge vote in november that depending luckily it went in our favor but it almost could have like wiped out what we're doing and that really put the fuel like put the fire under my ass like I have to I'm done in Big Bear and I have to now grow other markets um which is why I was trying to find good deal analysis calculators and post on Instagram (laughs) and everyone suggested you um but yeah I'm I'm with you it's it was so comfortable to grow when I had a cleaner I liked and a handyman and I just know that regulation and that market so well so what are what are your thoughts like when you are looking at getting a new market are you kind of of the approach like if you find one good deal somewhere will you take it or are you thinking more like you want to go somewhere where you can scale up again and really master that market um I don't know what are your thoughts on that yeah, I think our, our approach is the latter, right? Like yeah. whatever market we go into next, our goal is to buy at least a handful of properties in that market. So we can and like redo what we did in Joshua Tree and the Smokies and then start in a new market. Mm-hmm. So I think that is our our goal and mindset and intention moving forward, not just like buying one off in like a bunch of different markets. Because the ability to scale is mm-hmm. is so much more improved when you have the infrastructure. Like we we were only able to go from zero to almost 30 properties in the last two and a half years because of the infrastructure that we built. Yeah. So if we want to keep that same kind of rapid pace of growth, it, we can't do it if we have to stop and find new cleaners and find new handymen and find new vendors and this and that. But if we have the market, we set it up, then it's just kind of repeating that same process over and over again. Yeah, yeah. So I'd love to know, how does your approach to running deals change when you are considering the first property in a brand new market versus the 10th in a brand new market? Are your expenses mm-hmm. that you're accounting for any lower because maybe now you're getting a better deal on the cleaning or you've got a handyman that's giving you a good rate? Um, I'm just curious if that like, analysis changes at all as you grow in the market? I would say not really. The The steps don't change. Okay. Um, you know, like we're still kind of going to run through the, the same process. Um, but I think we just have more confidence in our underwriting, right? It's like when you first go into a market, there are still a lot of assumptions, even though the data um, is saying one thing and, and you have a certain level of confidence. But once you already have a property in that market and you can see, okay, this is how this one is performing, it builds your confidence to keep kind of moving forward and your ability to analyze deals faster 
increases as well. Like now we could look at, I could look at a deal in Joshua Tree and say within like a few minutes if it's a good deal or not, right? Because we've analyzed so many and I know how our properties perform. So I think that's the benefit of really sinking your teeth. Not necessarily that you do like less, but like your ability to do it faster increases. Sure. And then where are you looking for deals? Are you on Zillow? Do you find off-market opportunities? We're doing a little bit of everything. Um, so we, we definitely are on Zillow um, here. And just like a quick note for your listeners, right? Um, the last two years, right? Like 2020, most of 2021 was 100% a seller's market. Um, we're turned the corner 100%. It is now a buyer's market. And I put out, I think, six or seven offers last month in Joshua Tree, um, well below list price. These are all rehab properties that need a decent amount of work. Um, all of them initially got rejected. And I said, okay, cool. Um, three weeks later, I had one of them come back to me and say, Hey, um, you, I think I offered like $300,000. They said, Hey, will you take 375? I said, no, I, I offered 300. I said, okay, fine. Will you take 325? No, I offered 300. Will you take 312? No, I offered 300. Okay, fine. We'll sell it to you for 300. So we have a property under contract right now. It's <laughs> almost a hundred thousand dollars cheaper than what we've listed for because of where we're at in the market. So yeah. my advice to everyone that's listening is analyze the deal, understand what number makes sense for you, and then offer that number. doesn't matter what the offer, what the listing price is. If you know you need to offer this number, offer that number, hold to your guns, and you know, you might get lucky. That is, yeah, no, but wow, you just, you actually just blew my mind right now because I will look on Zillow and I'm like, okay, this is, this is the listed price. So I have to see if the numbers make sense off this, but you're almost approaching it backwards. You're running, you're, you're so good now at deal analysis. You're running it backwards and you're like, this deal only makes sense at this price. I'm going to offer that. And if they say no, I don't care. I'm walking away. That's such an incredible, like such an empowering position to be in. I think so many of us are like, oh, I hope that with that purchase price, I can make it work. But you're just approaching it of like, no, this is what I need. Make it work for me. I love that. (laughs) Wow, I love that. Um, Okay, I think the last thing I kind of want to dive into with you is, so, you know, we talked about calculating your your revenue, right? Your ADR times your occupancy. We talked about um, determining your cash on cash return. I would like to know when you're computing your expenses, um, I know we brushed on, you know, cleaning fee, handyman, um, insurance, taxes. How do you accurately estimate that? Like some properties you just get into and you find that they do need more work or more repairs or it's an older property than you thought. Um, How are you really getting like a good ballpark on some of these properties? Are you seeing them all in person also or are you doing these deals over the phone? Yeah, like 99% of the offers we put out are sight unseen. Um, So the way that they're, so a a couple things, right? I'll I'll separate like the rehab piece from your typical operating expenses. So your operating expenses, things like your insurance. um, If you already have a property in that market that's insured, that's like a similar size and scope, then use those numbers because it's a, a decent ballpark. If you don't have anything, Two things you can do. Send a note to your insurance agent and say, hey, I'm looking at buying this property. Can you give me a quote? Um, or ask other operators in that market if you know some to say, hey, what are you spending to insure your property? So that's easy way to get your, your insurance costs. Property taxes, um, a lot of times it's public record. You can go up and look those things up. But also recognize that a lot of times those property taxes will increase. Like if the property last sold you know, 20 years ago, you can assume that the property taxes they paid are going to increase because the purchase price 20 years ago was significantly lower. So I don't know, maybe double it, right? Just to kind of play it safe. Um, Utilities, those are like probably the hardest things to account for because 
that's not like public information. Right. So usually I, I just kind of ballpark utilities or I'll see if I can find someone in that market to ask, like, hey, what are you spending to, you on know, average, yeah, yeah. on mm. average. Um, okay. So those are the operating expenses, right? Talking to other to hosts in that market or going to the source and getting information from the city, from the county, from the utility company, whatever whatever it is. Okay. Um, cleaning re- fees for that one, because you said like yeah. you charge higher for your cleaning fee I, than you pay out your cleaner. I do the same. So if you were to look on Airbnb at what other clean, what other people are charging, you might be overestimating. Would you like reach out to cleaners and get quotes from them beforehand? Or how do you estimate your cleaning expenses? Yeah, typically I'll, I'll do what you said. So like Price Labs is also really cool because it, it gives that data for the market as well. So to say like, hey, 20% of the listings are charging between this price, you know, 30% are charging between this price. So I'll typically use that as kind of my ballpark number. Okay. We usually don't engage cleaners until we've got like something under contract typically. Okay. Um, but I also use that data as a way to push back if I feel like I'm getting unreasonable pricing from a cleaner. Mm-hmm. So if I can say, hey, 80% of the listings charge between 100 and 125, and I have a cleaner that comes to me and say, hey, it's going to be 200, I'll say, whoa, hey, your, your numbers are off because this is what 80% yeah, of the market is, is paying. Yeah. But I just wanted to add, like, emphasize one thing he said is, like, reaching out to other operators that are in that area you're analyzing. And I think that is such an underutilized um, resource. So for those of you guys listening, just know hosts are so, like, majority are so willing to share information. I feel like this is a a very interesting and really giving community is is Airbnb hosts, short-term rental hosts. Like, we're so willing to share our knowledge, resources, numbers, any advice we can give with other people. So if you even just go on Airbnb and look at other um, properties in that market that look the same as the one you're interested in, shoot a message, like inquire and shoot a message saying, hey, you know, I'm looking to do this. You never know, they might get a response. Also, Facebook groups, there's almost always a um, specific STR Facebook group for whatever market you're interested in. And and look at um, operators there. I just feel like that is such a underutilized resource. Absolutely. And I think if you go to these networking events like we're talking about, you might meet somebody who's just crushing it in a market and they might just straight up tell you their numbers. And it's like, OK, I think I just found the next place I'm going to invest in. So sometimes the work might be done for you just by you showing up and putting yourself out there. Um, yeah. OK, and then let's talk about rehab costs as well. How are you estimating that? Yeah, so rehab costs are a little bit more difficult in a new market. Right. Um, but here, here's the thing. Right. You, you can get a property under contract without having a super concrete number on the rehab. Like that is the entire purpose of your due diligence period. So if I get a property under contract on January 1st, typically I have 14 to 21 days of due diligence to be able to validate uh, those rehab numbers. Okay. Um, so what you can just look at a property and say, I'm going to guess it's $75,000 to rehab this thing. And then during the, that next 14 to 21 days, you can take the steps to actually go through and validate that number. And if it ends up being, $100,000 instead of 75, you can go back to the seller and say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Seller, I thought it was going to be 75. It's really $100,000. That's an extra $25,000 I wasn't planning on spending. I need a credit for $25,000. We just did that with a property we have under contract in Joshua Tree where it was super rough, like we knew it was going to be yeah. rough. And it still ended up being, I think, an extra like $25,000 credit is what we asked for. Um, and still, we're, that seller accept that credit, right? So you can use your due diligence period as a way to validate your assumptions, okay? At the beginning, that's exactly what they are. They're assumptions, so don't feel like you have to get it right the first time, okay? okay. Now, how can you actually validate those numbers, right? Like, what, what can you actually do? There's a few steps you can take. 
So number one is if you go into a new market and if you can find a contractor or a handyman or somebody, um, and I, I did this when we first started investing as well. I said, hey, here are photos of what the property looks like today. Here are photos of what I'm trying to get it to look like. I don't need you to walk the property. I don't need you to, to give me a full on bid. Just give me a ballpark of what you think it would take to get this property to look like this. And a lot of contractors are going to be willing to at least give you that, that bit of information. Okay. That's the easiest way to do it. The second step is to actually get the contractors to go out and walk the property for you. That is significantly harder if you don't have a relationship with that contractor because mm-hmm. contractors are busy, contractors they are unreliable. Yeah. Um, so that is harder. But what I did uh, when we first started investing is I would offer to pay them. I say, hey, I know typically you do bids for free, but I will pay you for your time wow. if you go out and do this uh, do this for me. Okay? How much do you pay them? I've never heard that, but I love that idea. That was a couple of years ago, but I don't know, like a couple hundred bucks probably to go walk the property. So nothing, nothing to break the bank, right? But it was enough to give me kind of the confidence I needed to um, to be able to make offers. Yeah. Um, the third thing that I did was I would ask contractors for um, like bids they did on other jobs. So for example, if, if a contractor just finished a job for another uh, person and you know he'd show me the photos, I'd say, okay, how much did that cost? And he would say, whatever, it was $50,000. And I'd say, okay, what was the square footage of that property? It was a thousand square feet. And I could do the math say, okay, this is the price per square foot to renovate a property of that size. And now I can say, here is a ballpark number I can use when I'm looking at properties to say, whatever, it's this much per square foot, 30 bucks per square foot, 40 bucks per square foot to anal- or to rehab this property. And now instead of having to go to the contractor every time, I just apply that rate of $30 per square foot to every property that I'm looking at. So there, there are tons of different ways you can kind of ballpark those numbers to make you confident to submit that offer. Are you ever getting your loans based on factoring the rehab cost into it? Um because I know when you do that, would that end up changing your how you're cal- calculating your cash on cash return, right? If you're rolling those rehabs into into your mortgage. So we always get short-term debt for our rehabs. Um, so we never get long-term debt that also includes the rehab. So mm. typically we'll get a note for 12 months. We'll use that 12 months to rehab, stabilize the property, and then we'll refinance out at the end of that term into something that's more permanent long-term. Okay. So it is more expensive up front. You know, we're paying 10 to 11% in interest, um, but it is easier to do it that way than, you know, trying to buy the property and add on those rehab costs. Okay, sure. And then just for clarification, when you are running your ADR and occupancy, you're doing that based on the finished product of what the property yep. will look like post-rehab. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So essentially, like for properties that we rehab, we almost have two analyses of that deal. We have the upfront analysis, which is what is it going to cost us to rehab this property? And do we have enough budget to rehab it? And then on the back end, we say, okay, at, at the new appraised value of this property, like for the new debt that we're going to get, what is our cash on cash return after that? So it's it's almost a two-step piece. We analyze it as a flip initially, and then we analyze it long-term. So it's almost like a burr. Um, but we, we, there's like two steps to it. Okay. Okay. And then, oh my God, what was the question I was just going to ask you? And I lost it. Shoot. Um, I just want to add. Yeah, go ahead. I'll think of what I have. That are more of a visual learner and are kind of lost with all these ADR occupancy, um, talk that they're talking about. We have a full on video or Tony did a whole video of literally him analyzing a deal and plugging in these numbers into that calculator that was rated number one, you know, so (laughs) If you guys want to run through this and get a visual um, 
uh, run, run through of what it looks like. Um, we can share that video link with you, Natalie. Maybe you can drop I it think in, it in the pops up. I think it pops up when you buy oh, the, cool. cal- yeah, when you get the calculator or don't, you don't buy it. It's a free download, but it popped up for me on like how to use the calculator. Um, yeah, so I think I it's there. there. Oh, you're amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's already there. <laughs> um, so they'll get it. Okay. Tony, I would also like to know what do you do in this situation where you might be in a market where there's really no good quality properties and your rehab is basically going to bring it to the top of the heap, the top of the market, if you don't have comps, how do you run your analysis? That's a great question. And we actually don't do that. Like I don't have enough confidence in myself to set the market. Like I want to make sure that there are comps that I can point to, to support my ARV, my after repair value. So if we're looking at, and we've actually passed on deals because we couldn't validate that ARV. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if we were, if you're we doing this like in, you know, early 2021, um, where the market was just going up and up and up, it'd be, maybe you could roll the dice, but in the environment they're in right now, um, you need solid comps and you even have, have to almost discount those comps in order to be confident in what it is that you're you're analyzing. So we don't ever want to set the market. I'm not that brave. I'll let someone else do it first and then we'll we'll kind of follow in after them. Great answer. Great strategy. Um, Okay. Thank you so much. This was like mind blowing. You got me to think about market analysis in such a different way. Um, I really encourage people. um, Hopefully you went and downloaded the calculator at the beginning of this episode and you could follow along as we went through. (laughs) Um, But either way, go grab it. It's free. And um, it's been so valuable for me just in the last month playing around with it. So I hope people love it. And um, also, I hope people come to your summit. And Sarah, I know you're going to be speaking at Level Up Your Listing Summit. Um, Tony, you can like stand in the background and cheer her on, but (laughs) it's girls only. Um, Yes, we're so excited to go. Seriously, we're so proud of you and excited to be there to cheer you on. Well, thank you. That means a lot coming from you too. Um, Anyway, I will see you in a few weeks at your event. Um, And thank you guys again. All right. Thanks for having us. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole, we need to discuss this absolutely unhinged guest who went completely deranged upon not having a working coffee maker, okay? And as a coffee aficionado myself, look, that would frustrate me too, but when I read you what this guest messaged to this host, let's let's just get into it. So the background story here is that I found this post in a hosting Facebook group, as I do almost all of these, and this host said, how would you all handle this disrespectful guest? Need advice. I want to cancel and get him out, but should I get my feelings out of it? I don't like disrespect, especially unnecessary disrespect. And then this host attached some screenshots, which I'm going to read to you. So their guest said... Hey, so I just wasted half an hour screwing around with your stupid coffee machine. Now my whole day is behind schedule and late. Please don't waste any time saying that there's a Keurig cup, obviously. I am personally sick of giving good reviews for Airbnbs that don't have the basics covered. It's a coffee machine. You could test it every now and then. This really sucks. It's a major problem for me, and I really don't want to be pissed off and grumpy every day and have to spend an extra half hour going to Starbucks or whatever. I'm actually super pissed at wasting all that time and still no coffee except garbage Keurig water crap. Seriously, last straw for me and Airbnb that don't work. This is not passive income. All caps. And this host said, Hello, so sorry for the inconvenience. I'm not sure what's wrong with the coffee machine at the moment, but there is another brand new coffee brewer in the kitchen closet by the refrigerator. 
please let me know if you have located it. And then about 45 minutes later, the guest responds and says, found the other coffee machine. Excellent and thank you. Sorry for my attitude, but I travel a lot, work a lot, and spend a lot at Airbnbs. So it's become a bit of a trigger for me. Thank you for being well prepared. And that was it. That was the end of the screenshots. I'm very curious to get your guys' take on this one. So here are my thoughts. This guest, like, I I do not know what gives them the right to talk to their host like this. And this is actually one of my biggest pet peeves is when people take frustrating instances that have happened, recurring frustrations, and take it out on someone that it has nothing to do, nothing to do with. And so I totally empathize with this guest who has stayed at multiple Airbnbs and had things wrong at each of them and the comment of like, this is not passive income. Um, okay, I get it. This guy is triggered, okay? What really upsets me though is taking it out on this host that did nothing wrong. Appliances break, okay? And to have that be your first reaction, why not just start with the message that says, hey, have a little issue with the coffee maker. Can you help me get it to work? And then if there's not an answer, you can be a little more mad. I still don't think it gives you a right to just be disrespectful like this, but then you can escalate things a little bit, okay? But this guest didn't even give this host a chance to solve it. And props to this host for having a brand new coffee machine already waiting. We have that in a couple of our units only. I do have brand new backup coffee makers wait, uh, waiting in the storage closet. I am now going to get backup coffee makers for all of the units because I you just really cannot be too prepared with these kinds of things. And so amazing job to this host for having that all ready to go and staying so calm, cool, and collected. I think it's so unfair of the guest. I understand that they've had frustrating situations before. It's so unfair of them to put this on the host like that. And I I don't know. I do want to get your guys' thoughts because I think that the guest is obviously the Airbnb hole. However, I do kind of empathize with him that there are a lot of Airbnb hosts that just aren't dropping the ball and that if this guy travels and stays at them a lot for work and things are not matching this, the descriptions, I get that that's frustrating. I would like to know your guys' thoughts on this one, actually. So shoot me a DM on Instagram or something after you listen to this episode because a lot of the comments under this post were actually very torn. Half the people were just like, dude, good for you. You handled it really well as a host. And then the guest realized that he overstepped and apologized, like way to handle it. And the other half of the comments were like red flags all around. If this guy becomes this unhinged at a coffee maker, kick him out now and cancel and report him before he freaks out about something else. And I'm really torn. Like I see both of those. Ugh. I don't know. I mean, obviously this interaction was so over the top and inappropriate. But like, I want to kind of feel for the guy and the fact that he kind of apologized and owned up to it makes me be like, okay, he just had a weak moment. But also that is just so unfair to put on the host who did nothing wrong. Just because you had problems with other previous hosts does not give you a right to take it out on this guy. So I'm actually pretty torn on this one, which is shocking because I feel like I always have very strong opinions on these. This one, I, I could be convinced either way. So I would love to know your guys' thoughts on this one. Um, for sure, the host is not the Airbnb hole. So professional of them, how they handled it, and they were so prepared. So let's take a lesson from this host and everybody 
go buy a backup coffee maker and put it in your supply closet ASAP. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening and I'll see you back here next week. Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye.